This is 5 minutes to midnight. I am Mohamed Aldafani. In this age of 24-hour news, the internet, social media and the virtual demise of in-depth journalism, we tend to see international problems and conflicts as isolated events, disconnected from one another and from the past. In this episode, Middle East analyst Dr. Farhang Jahanpour views the current problems of the Middle East and its relations with the West from an historical perspective. He outlines a vision whereby Middle Eastern peoples might regain their position as great members of the international community. Welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight, Dr. Farhan Jahanpour. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to take part in another of your podcasts. Uh, I would like to talk about the Middle East in a changing world. As you know, the whole world is in turmoil at the moment, and so is the Middle East. And as part of the world, the events in the world will obviously affect the Middle East and its future. Uh, As you have recorded a large number of excellent programs and interviews with a number of experts on individual Middle Eastern countries, I will try to talk about generalizations about the Middle East as a whole, its past history, its challenges, and where it is going in future, hopefully. Um, The first thing to bear in mind is that, in fact, the whole term Middle East is a European concept uh, because they regarded India as the East, China as the Far East, and therefore what was closer to them was the Middle East. Uh, But of course, it depends where you are looking at it and where you are sitting. If you are looking at it from the Chinese point of view, India is the near west and the Middle East is the far west and so on. If you look at it from Russia, the Middle East is the near south. If you look at it from Africa, it's the near north. So the whole concept is actually a very muddled one. So now that we know that the whole term does not apply to anywhere, probably can stop. (laughs) But if you like me to go on, um, the way that the West is regarding the Middle East at the moment, it includes a number of major countries like Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Yemen, uh, the six members of the GCC, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, UAE, Saudi Arabia. And of course, in the past 75 years, Israel has also become a part of the Middle East, as you know, this year, this month they celebrate the 75th anniversary of the establishment of the State of Israel. Sometimes they also include um, Afghanistan, although Afghanistan is really more in Central Asia and the East, but because of its affinity, linguistic, cultural, historical affinity with Iran, I think it is okay to include it in the Middle East. Now, I have traveled to most parts of the Middle East. I've been to, of course, Iran, Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, Israel and Palestinian territories and so on. Um, And sadly, what I found in all those countries is that there is a situation which is not very satisfactory. Most of them lack democracy. And what is more, something which I found practically in all the Arab countries in Iran and even in Israel, is a certain or a feeling of 
uncertainty and vulnerability. Uh, none of the regimes definitely feel very secure and the people are also mainly unhappy about their plight. However, it is important to point out that both the Middle Eastern people and the West uh, have a rather poor understanding of the Middle East. And as a result, we are facing major problems in mutual understanding, and they are the reason for some of the conflicts uh, during the past few decades. It is important to bear in mind, both for the sake of Middle Eastern people and also to remind the West that the Middle East is heir to great civilizations. What is not quite realized is that civilization as we know it really started in the Middle East and in the Indus Valley. The Sumerians became the very first people uh, to develop complex systems that we can call civilization as far back as the fifth millennium BC. Mesopotamia was home to several powerful empires and civilizations, uh, including the Assyrian Empire. And what is important to bear in mind is how long these civilizations and the empires lasted. The Assyrian Empire lasted from 1365 uh, to 1076 BC. The new Assyrian Empire from 911 to 609 BC. And of course, Egyptian civilization coalesced around 3150 BC with the political unification of the Upper and Lower Egypt and created a great civilization. And the Persian Empire started with the Medes from 678 BC to 555 BC. The Achaemenes from 550 uh, to 330 BC, then the short-lived period of Alexander's invasion and his successes, which again was replaced by the Parthian Empire from two, uh, 247 BC to 224 AD, over 470 years. Then the Sasanian Empire from 224 AD to 651 AD, over 420 years, which ended with the Islamic invasion of Iran. But of course, after the Islamic invasion too, and the Islamization of Iran, um, Iran produced some of the powerful empires within the Islamic world. So as you can see, Iran remained a powerful country, competing first with the Greeks, then with the Romans, then with the Byzantines, and then later on during Islam. If you come to the Arabs in the more recent time, I mean, leaving the ancient world aside, we come to the Arab empires. The first one was, of course, the Rashidun, the sort of Orthodox Caliphate, the heirs to Prophet Muhammad, which lasted from 632 to 661 AD in Arabia. Then we have got the Umayyad Caliphate, which was based in Damascus from 661 to 750 AD. Then the long and very powerful Abbasid Caliphate, which lasted for over 400, 500 years from 750 uh, to 1258, when it was destroyed by the Mongols. But uh, there was a second period of the Abbasid Empire, which lasted from 
1270, and that the Mamluks located in Cairo from 1250 to 1517, and altogether it lasted for 767 years, which ruled Egypt and Syria from 1250 to 1517. Then we come to the Ottoman Empire, which again lasted over 600 years, started with Ottoman, which gave it his name to the Ottoman or Osman, as the Arabs pronounce it, uh, from 1299 to 1922. Uh, then in 1453, Mehmet the Great, the conqueror, uh, conquered Constantinople and put an end to the Byzantine Empire. And the Ottoman Empire did not become just a Middle Eastern Empire, but also a European Empire, large part of Eastern Europe was under Ottoman rule, and they even twice laid siege in 1529 and even 1532 uh, to uh, Vienna under Solomon the Magnificent. So we can see that the Middle East has really played a very, very important role, both in ancient history and also in modern history when the proper historical records exist. Uh, since the Ottoman, uh, since the Achaemenid, Egyptian, and Assyrian empires. If you look at it geographically, it is a pivotal place. If you look at the whole history of the world, of course, before great navigation started, the Middle East, if you look at Iran, in the north there is the whole Caspian Sea and the, the Siberian cold frozen parts. To the south, we have the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. And the only link between the East and the West was the Middle East, Iran, and the rest of the Middle East. Uh, one of the authors, historians, whom I'm very fond of, uh, Halford Mackinder, who was in fact the principal of Reading University, what became Reading University. And he was also a co-founder and the first principal of the London School of Economics and politics. He was the first political scientist to coin the term geopolitics. And he stressed the significance of what he called the world island or the pivotal area. In 1904, he formulated his great idea of the heartland theory. And he in fact said, whoever controls Central Asia and the Middle East controls the world because this is the part where the East and the West meet. This is the pivotal, the most important part of the world. Of course, later on with the development of global navigation, this Middle East was somehow uh, bypassed, surrounded by European powers and the European centers, uh, big seaports became important in the world and the Middle East went to eclipse. But of course, now again, what I'm trying to argue is that it is coming back uh, to great importance. But because of its geographical position, it has always been a center for conflict and for great interest, both uh, from the powers in the East and the West, as our friend, colleague Jeremy Bowen, wrote in his recent book, The New Middle East. He wrote, the Middle East attracts outsider and the desire to control it has led to suffering and slaughter. 
It possesses resources as well as sacred and strategic territory. Once the world entered the industrial era and craved carbon, the planet's biggest reserves of oil and gas were impossible to ignore. It's very important. It is the home of great religions which have influenced the world, Judaism, before that Zoroastrianism, Mithraism, uh, Anahita's cult in Iran, then Judaism, uh, then we have got Christianity, then Islam, and then, of course, in more modern times, the resources of the Middle East, which were in trillions, it's not billions, because just imagine if you have got 9, 10 million barrels of oil a day from Saudi Arabia, up till past few decades, the income which the oil producing countries derived was only a small fraction of what the oil really was worth, because a great part of it was transportation, was wholesale, was selling at, at uh, pumps and so on. And then, of course, the interest which Western countries imposed on the sale of oil. So the big, the lion's part share of the income went to Western countries, Western oil companies and Western treasuries. And therefore, we can see that in the course of since, say, 1909, when Iran became a major producer, then later on with the development of Aramco and so on, BP, the British Petroleum, which controlled Iranian oil, for a while became the biggest company in the world. And of course, Aramco was and is probably uh, the biggest company in the world. And it poured trillions, as I said, not even billions or hundreds of billions, into the coffers of the West, Western companies and Western countries. This period of glory of the Middle East, as I said, ended with the discovery of the sea routes and, of course, the discovery of the new world, which entered a completely new era into the world geography and world history and world politics. During the age of discovery in the 15th and 16th centuries, Various European countries, Portugal, Spain, Britain, uh, began to explore the globe and create new empires. As far as the Middle East is concerned, it is not realized that the period of Western domination was relatively uh, short-lived. If you look at the very first inroads, if you like, of Europeans into a major Western country, was Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1798. So we come right to the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And he, of course, went there for riches. And then, of course, there was the French Empire in Algeria from 1830, which ended in 1962. It is estimated that the native Algerian population fell by up to one-third between 1830, the occupation of Algeria by the French, and 1875, due to warfare, disease, and starvation. The British Empire, so-called British Raj, started from 1858, and it lasted to 1947. It followed the original East India Company, which started in 1757, and then to 1858, and then the British Raj, which ended with the Second World War. So as you can see, practically between 150 to 200 years is the period of the European domination uh, of the Middle East.
During the Second World War, European empires tore into each other and killed millions of each other and citizens of other countries. According to latest revised figures after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we now have these gigantic, unbelievable figures. USSR lost some 26.6 million people. The People's Republic of China lost about 2 million people. Germany lost nearly 9 million people. Japan lost some 3 million people. Then when we come to European countries, France lost some 567,000. UK lost about 384,000. And United States, despite its much larger population than its European allies, lost about 450,000. What is often not realized is that the number of people in European colonies, which were used to fight the European wars, was much more than the number of actual Europeans who were killed. French Indochina lost some 8 million people. India, which was not directly involved in the war, but whose soldiers were used as a part of British Empire, lost 2.5 million people, more than the French, British, and American casualties combined. In fact, maybe twice that number. Meanwhile, protected by two oceans and thousands of miles away from the scene of battle, the United States was the only country that remained relatively immune. There was no attack on U.S. mainland, the only attack being on Pearl Harbor. So U.S. emerged relatively unscathed and more powerful than any of the former European powers. At the end of the Second World War, the United States was producing nearly half of the entire global industrial output. In fact, it is ironic that the latest figures about China shows that China's output now rivals, equals the output of the United States, Japan, and Europe combined. But anyway, at the end of the Second World War, America became a major power, helping the European powers to recover with its Marshall Plan and other helps. Uh, it, it helped the European countries uh, to again get back on their feet. Now, I'm not a leftist or anti-American. I love America. Uh, my father lived the best part of his youth in America. I believe that the U.S. Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights made major contributions uh, to the development of democracy in the world. And of course, they have evolved. Now we can see that all of them have got certain shortcomings which need to be amended. But after the Second World War, we had two major powers. We had the United States and the West, and of course the Soviet Union, NATO, and the Warsaw Pact. In 1941, Henry Luce declared the American century. And I think he was not very wrong about that. It's nearly lasted many decades when America was supreme. And in 1992, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, America really became a colossus, a hyperpower, a superpower in a unipolar world. This result has been, I think, disastrous, both for the Middle East, of course, with a succession of wars 
in Iran, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, further afield in Somalia and elsewhere. We have seen the images of Fallujah and other places became victims of the depleted uranium from Baghdad to Najaf, Maghuba, Ramadi and so on. They are as familiar as scenes of disaster to the people in the Middle East, especially in Iraq, as the 9-11 attacks, which fortunately produced much, much smaller number, a fraction of the casualties in the Middle East for the Amer are familiar to the Americans. There has been a strong impression given in the world, which has been even accepted by the people in the Middle East, that the West has always been the land of democracy and human rights, while Middle East has been the land of despotism. Now, historically, this is not really true at all. If you look at the recent history of the rise of the West, you see that most countries in America and Latin America developed with the ethnic cleansing of the native populations. We had slavery on an industrial scale unprecedented in the past history of the world when millions, tens of millions of Africans were taken from their countries in the slave ships to Europe and America. But we also have had some of the major problems which have arisen politically and militarily in the world. And we talk about totalitarian, Eastern totalitarianism. Well, the real totalitarianism really started in the West with communism in Russia, which started, of course, with ideas in, in Germany. We have the rise of fascism in Italy, in Spain, in many other countries, followed by the rise of Nazism in Germany, militarism, uh, something which President Eisenhower warned us against, the military-industrial complex. It is sobering to think that America's military budget is bigger than the next nine biggest military spenders combined. America is by far the biggest oil uh, weapons exporter. It has got some 150, 180 bases in many, many countries all over the world. When I say 150, it is all the major bases. There are many more all over the place. So it is time for the Middle Eastern people uh, to really look at the reality of the situation and see that although they have had a very bad period of some 200 years of colonization when all Middle Eastern and in fact Islamic countries with the exception of Turkey and Iran were colonized, but they have had a past glorious history with periods of freedom, progress, invention, development, and that they, they can also revive that glory of the past, not in the form of empire, but of regaining their position as great members of the international community. Therefore, if you allow me, I talked separately, as you know, uh, about Iran, so I won't be talking in detail about it, uh, but we must say, at least realize that the current revolution by women, which has started with the slogan of women, life and liberty, although has subsided, it certainly has not uh, ended. There are major developments in Iran, trade unions, people, women, all different classes are arising for greater democracy and greater freedom. 
as I've talked briefly about Turkey, the Arab world, and of course, Arab-Israeli uh, situation. Turkey, of course, lost its great empire after the First World War. And even after the Second World War, it saw a series of regular military coups, often supported by the West, whenever the country or the government was moving towards some form of independence or return to its Islamic identity or Ottoman identity, there was a military coup to return it back to uh, Ataturk's views of secularism. But eventually, Turkey achieved some form of stability with the rise of the Islamist-oriented Justice and Development Party, led by Erdogan first as prime minister and then lately as president. Now, I think with the elections which are coming shortly this month, in Turkey, Turkey is at crossroads and is again facing a choice between its Islamism and between a return to secularism. There are some extreme pan-Turkic groups too, but the main challenger to President Erdogan uh, seems to be the mainly secular party of Akram Emamoglu, uh, the mayor of Istanbul. And so we have to watch the polls show that they are neck and neck after the recent earthquake and the economic problems that Turkey is facing, it could go either way. So the next election in Turkey is very, very important, which we have to watch very carefully and see whether it will be a continuation of Islamism and the President Erdogan or a return to secularism. As far as the Arab worlds are concerned, there have been a number of historical reasons for the rather sad state of affairs uh, that we see in many Arab countries. One problem with the Middle East has been, of course, the legacy of colonialism. And the sad fact is that its legacy has not left the region yet. It has changed form, but it is still continuing uh, in the sense that most Arab states are still clients of the West, especially the United States. They spend tens of billions on receiving Western weapons and believe that they will not last uh, without Western support, as President Trump said about Saudi Arabia, that it will not last two weeks without US help. Of course, that's an exaggeration, but they have allowed themselves uh, to become, if you like, client states of the West. The second problem has been the Arab-Israeli conflict which has directly or indirectly affected the region and the Arab countries. And we'll talk about Israel later on. But I think the effect of Israel and its influence on the United States has been that the Arab countries have been on the receiving end of US military invasions, partition, and keeping them down. The third has been the curse of the military rule inside which really started in the 50s and has continued up to the present time. The reason for this is that, of course, after the period of colonialism, most countries which wanted to free themselves from colonialism had no option but to turn to the military as the only organized force in the society with access to weapons. And so, you see that the changes which happened in Egypt, in Algeria, in Syria, in Iraq, practically the whole of the Middle East, was 
through military uh, coups in order to achieve independence. And this, of course, meant that one sort of domination, Western domination, was replaced by military domination. This led to a fourth problem. Because the military did not have any legitimacy, and in order to achieve legitimacy, they either began uh, to adopt religious fanaticism as part of the rule, or the other byproduct was the countries, the nations, which wanted to free themselves from the curse of the military rule, found that the only other power which they could utilize to stand up to the military rule was a religious rule, because of course, religious power, because in all Middle Eastern countries, religion still played a very dominant role. So this is why we see that under President Morsi, we have returned to Islamic Muslim Brotherhood. In Iran, there was the revolution, which initially was a leftist, and some could say even a democratic revolution, but they brought in the mullahs and the clerics to achieve force with the help of the church mosques and the mullahs, and of course it then became an Islamic revolution, and so on and so forth. In addition to the Iranians, the Arabs, and the Turks, as I said, during the past 75 years, we have also had Israel as a state in the Middle East. I think we should be honest to talk openly about the state of Israel. There has been some ugly anti-Jewish, what in the West called anti-Semitic, feeling uh, among some fundamentalists in the Middle East, even to the point of denying the Holocaust. We really have to get over that nonsense. When I first came to England in 1960, I met a German lady who belonged to a rather rich Jewish family in, in Berlin. And even when she told me about her history, even then, many years afterwards, she really could not stop crying. Being a member of the Roger Rich family, they had servants, they had a maid. And the maid had gone to collect her from a, a private nursery. And when they came to the house through the back door, they saw that the SS was in the house. The nurse was very quick in putting her hand on her mouth and dragging her out from the back door and taking her to some relatives. She said that was the last time she saw her parents. They were deported from Germany uh, to Poland and later on died. Now, you cannot deny this horrible killing of some six million Jews in the worst possible circumstances by the Nazis in Europe. Of course, this was not a Middle Eastern problem. But we in the Middle East, I mean, the people in the Middle East, I'm of course British and we live in the West, they have to come to terms with this feeling of loss, vulnerability, and victimhood which the Jews feel all over the world. But of course, as if we have the courage to stand up to the fundamentalist and declare our solidarity uh, with this sentiment of the Jewish people, we should also have the courage to stand up uh, to the attacks which are made on the Arabs and the Palestinians by the State of Israel. As you know, the State of Israel initially came into existence with the 1917, 2nd of November 1917, Balfour Declaration uh, by U uh, UK Secretary of State Lord Balfour. 
in this short statement, he wrote, His Majesty's government viewed with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done, and of course this is ironic, it being understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the right and political status enjoyed by the Jews in other countries. As Churchill said, we gave a piece of property from one people to another people. Of course, what he omits to say is that that piece of property in 1917 did not even belong uh, to, to Britain. And we also have to remember that this was, of course, long before Holocaust. If you read the accounts of Lord Balfour himself and the British government, you see they're rather um, ignoble, if you like, uh, motives behind this move. Balfour's motivation was mainly political, of course. He thought that by so doing, he would appeal to the world jury, mainly in Germany and Russia and so on. And also he would appeal to President Woodrow Wilson and his two closest advisors, Louis Brandeis and Felix uh, Frankfurter, uh, who were avid Zionists. Lord George, the, Lloyd George, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, who testified before the Palestine Royal Commission, said, and this is important really to remember these, the Zionist leaders gave us a definite promise that if the Allies committed themselves to giving to giving facilities for the establishment of a national home for the Jews in Palestine, they should do their best to rally Jewish sentiment and support throughout the world to the Allied causes. They kept their word. So really the aim was not to help the Jews or to establish a state in Palestine, but mainly to appeal to the world Jewry in America, in Germany, in Russia, in the rest of the world, to support the Allied cause. In his memoirs, Lloyd George further elucidated his position. And again, this is very important. He wrote the Balfour Declaration represented the convinced policy of all parties in our country and also in America but the launching of it in 1917 was due, as I have said, to propagandist reasons. The Zionist movement was exceptionally strong in Russia and America. It was believed also that such a declaration would have a potent influence upon world Jewry outside Russia and secure for the Entente the aid of Jewish financial interests. In America, their aid in this respect would have a special value when the Allies had almost exhausted the gold and marketable securities available for American purchases. Such were the chief considerations which in 1917 impelled the British government towards making a contract with Jewry.
end quote. So you can see that the motivation was mainly to influence the large number of Jews in Russia, in Germany, and in the rest of the world. Secondly, to influence America and American Jews and their rich donors uh, to help the European countries. And thirdly, of course, uh, to receive funds directly uh, from Jewish enterprises uh, for the British and European uh, end of. Now, whatever the sources of it, and then, of course, we know that there was a partition by the United Nations Assembly, which, of course, is not entitled uh, to partition the countries. It is an advisory body. The, the partition of Palestine did not go to the Security Council. In fact, a number of people in the uh, United Nations General Assembly, which later on voted for an independent Palestine, was larger than the number of those who had voted for partition. But here we are. We are here. A state has been created. It has flourished uh, for some 75 years, but at huge cost to the Arabs, many wars, and it still continues. My point now is that both the Middle East has to accept the state of Israel. But what is more important is that for the state of Israel should come to terms that it wants to be a Middle Eastern country. And if it wants to be a Middle Eastern country and not an extension of America or the West, it should behave as a Middle Eastern country and it should come to peace to some form of agreement with its neighbors, the Palestinians, which has replaced two thirds of which is ethnically cleansed during the establishment of Israel and has kept as second class or third class citizens ever since the establishment of the state of Israel. Many Israelis have come to realize this, uh, that Israel has to change course. The famous Israeli novelist David Grossman wrote, we hand our fate over to the security people. We allow the army to run the country because we lack a political class with a vision beyond the military. Survival becomes our only aim. We are living in order to survive, not in order to live. These are very important words. Israel is now secure. It has the biggest conventional force in the Middle East. It has the only nuclear force, which it achieved even by deceiving the Americans initially, under Johnson and under Kennedy, um, to become a major nuclear force. What it should do is to come and achieve some genuine equal peace with the Palestinians and with the rest of the Arabs. Unfortunately, the turn it has taken recently and uh, Mr. Netanyahu has been to go backwards into religious fundamentalism and Zionist nationalism. A member of the is recent Israeli coalition agreement said the Jewish people has an exclusive and inalienable right to all parts of the land of Israel. The government will promote and develop the settlements of in all parts of the land of Israel, including Judea and Samaria.
In other words, there's no Palestine. The whole of Palestine is going to be part of the land of Israel. I think this is a rather dangerous thing because he referred to the biblical things and said we have to, God has given us the land and we have inherited it on the basis of God's promise to Abraham. I believe this is rather dangerous because if you reduce a democracy, which the Israelis claim that they had, to a religious state based on uh, the Bible, then many people are entitled to question other biblical references, which they believe gives legitimacy to the state of Israel. The Bible, of course, says the world was created some 6,000 years ago. God created Adam, and then because he was lonely, took a rib from him and created Eve. Then there was the fall. Then there was Noah, the flood covered the entire world and all world population. Then there was the flood and Noah was the only one and his people on the little boat, which he took a pair of all the species on the earth. They, they survived and all human population from the Chinese to the Middle East, to the Africans, to the Europeans are descendants of the three sons of Noah. Then, of course, God came to Abraham uh, and said that he wants to give him a son. Abraham fell down laughing on the rolling on the floor, saying, how can a man of 99 and a woman, a wife of 95 have a child? But God said, I want to give you a child and I make you glorious and then gave the promise of the promised land and they became the chosen people. Now, when you come to this, then people are going to ask questions. Did really the flood take place? Did the world start uh, 8,000 years ago? Was there the exodus of tens, hundreds of thousands of Jews, according to the Bible, from Egypt uh, to Canaan, where there was no reference whatsoever to it, either in the Egyptian sources or in the excavations which have been made? Um, in, in, in the Palestine. Therefore, I think really that Israel has to come to terms with the reality of its state in the Middle East. And obviously its best course is to become a democracy and base its legitimacy on international law and a democratic state in the Middle East in peace uh, with neighbors, renounce its nuclear weapons, join the NPT, establish a nuclear-free zone in the whole of the Middle East, and come to terms as a valued, important member of the new uh, committee of Middle Eastern nations, the Arabs, the Persians, the Turks, and try to live in peace and create another glorious era of peace and stability in the Middle East. Now, recently there have been some major regional developments. The Israelis were, of course, trying to uh, create some uh, war between the Arabs with the help of Israel against Iran. But the recent mediation by China to bring Iran and Saudi Arabia together has been a game changer. It has been a major, major development. You already see the results of it. Uh, they are sh shortly going to reestablish their embassies 
recently Saudi warships released, uh, freed a lot of Iranians who were in Sudan and brought them back. And you could see the scenes of friendship, kissing each other, Iranian envoy in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they are going to have three weekly flights, direct flights between Iran and Saudi Arabia. There is talk of major Saudi investment in Iran and Iranian investment in Saudi. Now you can see that just this one event has really changed the whole dynamic of the events in the Middle East. But this has not been uh, the only thing. President Xi is talking of creating a of having a summit meeting between the whole of the GCC countries and Iran. In fact, this would be a major development. Gulf Cooperation Council, Iran and Iraq are the members of uh, Gulf littoral states. It would be fantastic if they could come together and could create a union much bigger. But I think they should even go beyond that. They should try to revive what was the regional development uh, council, which included initially CENTO, uh, Iran, Turkey, Pakistan, then of course Iraq and Afghanistan and also the Caucasus. If the GCC uh, can join this, it will create a union of nearly half a billion people, over 400 million people with multi-trillion dollar GDP. It will stretch from Central Asia to Caucasia, to Iran, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, and to the Persian Gulf. And it will create a bloc, not again as a military bloc against other countries, but through cooperation and trade and development, they can again protect themselves from any foreign influence or invasion, but also can create a great economic bloc to help their people. You see, the world after the Second World War was really a Western-dominated world. As you know, they created the Security Council in the United Nations with five permanent members, the United States, Russia, Britain, France, and not even China. China joined much later as the victors of the Second World War. The rest of the countries became much, much less important. The in, in international institutions which were uh, developed, like the World Bank, like the IMF, like even the World Trade Organization, all dominated by the West. The SWIFT, which regulates interbanking systems, is in mainly under US control. The major currency is US dollar. And of course, this means that they have used, unfortunately misused, the dominance of the dollar to impose sanctions on all countries that do not do their bidding. And this has meant hundreds of billions of loss. Just imagine what Iran has suffered since the revolution because of the US sanctions. Iran was producing five million barrels of oil a day, it was competing with Saudi Arabia before the revolution. Then after the revolution, they deliberately reduced it to 3 million. But after the US sanctions, it went to a trickle to half a million. Imagine the loss of four or five million barrels of oil a day over 40 years of what kind of figure 
that comes to all the same in, in Syria, in Libya, in uh, other countries, of course, in the West, in Venezuela and so on. Um, the only way that Middle Eastern countries can move away uh, from this period of humiliation and weakness is to revamp uh, the world organizations. We really need, because of course, after the uh, attack uh, in uh, Russian attack on Ukraine and the NATO's support for Ukraine, the whole system uh, architecture which was created after the Second World War has collapsed because now you have the whole of NATO, 31 now and soon 32 countries with a huge uh, predominance of uh, nuclear power over Russia. And so that system has collapsed. But then if you want to revise the United Nations Security Council, you should see that there are countries much, much bigger and more powerful than the three European countries which are in it. One can think of, on top of my head, Japan, Indonesia, Australia, India in the East. India now with the most populous country even has overtaken China of 1.4 billion people. Its economy is now becoming the third strongest economy in the world. In fact, in about 10, 15 years time, probably none of the European countries will be in the top 10 biggest GDP countries. While in, in the Middle East, you at least have four countries, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Egypt, with Turkey with over 3 trillion, Saudi Arabia with over 2 trillion, Iran and Egypt with over 1.56 trillion dollars, with huge populations. Uh, Egypt now has got nearly 110 million. Iran has got uh, nearly 90 million. Turkey over 85 million. And so these are major countries. If you really want to revamp this post-World War system, you have to bring, as I said, Japan, Indonesia, Australia, India from the East, maybe South Africa and Nigeria from the African continent, Brazil and Argentina from Latin America, and in the Middle East, these heirs to these three great uh, civilizations, the Persian, the Turkish, the Arab, represented by Iran, Turkey, and Egypt as the permanent members of the Security Council. This would create some form of balance. But of course, all this depends on whether we are going to have a peaceful transition to a future world, or we are going to face what is called as the Thucydides trap. Uh, Graham Allison started this idea, and he and his colleagues uh, made a major study of the country's major powers, which had to be replaced by another countries. And he discovered that the vast majority of the countries when they were being replaced by a new hegemon or a big power uh, led to war and destruction. Now, I hope America is the biggest democracy in the world, a country which is made of nationalities, nations of all over the world, and still in the driving seat in the world, can see fit that instead of becoming a great empire, would lead the world 
towards a new age of what its ideals and the constitution stood for, namely a world of equal nations, equality of man, the end of colonialism, and bringing the world together into a new uh, world order. But I think in the Middle East, the major requirements of it, two major requirements, are that they should get their act together, develop democracy, and move away from these dictatorial regimes, and also what was the byproduct of that which I mentioned, get away from religious fanaticism and religious extremism and develop a moderate form of religion or secularism. If they can do this, move towards democracy, democracy, democracy. Accept all the countries as members of one order, including, as I said, Arabs, Turks, Iranians, and now Israel, and try to reach union of all these countries, not for war, but for development and for peace, I think the new Middle East in a new world will have a glorious future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Farhan, for a, a hugely interesting uh, talk about the history and possible future developments of the Middle East. Just a few questions, uh, if you would. Sure. Uh, much earlier on in your talk, you spoke about the continued misunderstanding between the West and, uh, and the Middle Eastern countries. How much of this misunderstanding would you attribute to the media in the West? Oh, very much. So, of course, the media, really, we don't realize. But as people who have worked for the media and are aware of the influence of media, perception is everything. Uh, the major work of the media is not so much that there is direct censorship, but is, of course, the selection of the news. Listen, when you're listening to the radio television stations of various countries all over the world, an event took place. Let's take Ukraine. In the West, our media is uh, ingrained, is co-opted, is used on the part of the Ukrainian forces. We see the war from the Ukrainian side. In the Gulf War, they were part of the American military. And so their type of reporting was completely opposite. And the media has a major role in demonizing one part of the world and exaggerating the virtues of the other side of the world. This is why Media is very important. BBC is supposed to be impartial. But I mean, the whole idea of impartiality is really very, very difficult thing to achieve because every broadcaster has a point of view, has a historical, cultural, political background and represents that background. There's nothing nasty about it. BBC represents Britain in the same way that the Russian media represents Russia, uh, American media, of course, I don't know what they represent. Fox represents one point of view, uh, CNN, <laughs> a different point of view. But yes, media is extremely important. And of course, nowadays we have the uh, virtual system and, and, and the internet which partly is a development, a good development, but partly a very nasty because it has developed its own life 
of becoming ugly, uh, rude, uh, and very antagonistic. And so what we really need to do is to have uh, revise our whole idea of a global media, impartial media, and try to move uh, towards reflecting the news as it is, not as a very partisan kind of exercise. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned uh, the dominance of the military uh, due to the fact that it was the only organized f uh, group uh, post-colonialism and also the, how the military u rulers have used religion uh, as a way of legitimizing themselves, uh, which is very true uh, from my own experience and also for anybody familiar with the history of the Middle East would recognize that. One seminal, extremely important event in the, in the uh, history of the Arab world was the defeat in 1967. This sort of uh, was the final nail in the coffin of secular pan-Arabism pan or secular nationalism, which I hasten to add is different from European nationalism. To what extent would you say that the 67 defeat actually gave a major push to religion, religious fanaticism in the Arab world? It did not give a push only to religious fanaticism in the Arab world, but again, if people do not take it wrongly, uh, it also gave a push to Jewish fanaticism in Israel, turned it from a democracy into a country which they thought all the biblical prophecies are coming true, Israel is becoming great power, and so on. I think, naturally, when you are in a weak position, you turn to religion as a solace, as an explanation, as a justification for your existence. I think in the new multipolar world and a world which hopefully uh, should develop if you are going to avoid a world catastrophe and Armageddon and destroy the human race. We have to have balance. We have to have moderation. Secularism does not mean uh, that we have all to become atheists. Secularism means religion belongs to the private domain, while politics should be based on the uh, collective judgment and the views of the people selecting their governments and abiding by the rules, the laws which they make. And so I think if we in the Middle East, as including Israel, uh, come to this re realization that really democracy is more important than Judaism, than Islam, than Christianity, that we have to move towards globalization, democratization, unification, mutual understanding, then uh, we can change course and create a better world for ourselves and for the world. But this also applies to America because the religious right in America and Christian Zionists in America wield huge power both on American politics and then by extension on global politics. So I think what we really need to have is a new renaissance is a new reformation, is a new age of enlightenment, which we have forgotten, that we should base our ideas on science, on reason, on rationality, on peace, not militarism, on cooperation. And that is really the only way 
we can avoid a global catastrophe. Thank you. The dominance of the military and the religious establishment, and when I talk about the religious establishment, I think the, uh, the uh, best illustrated by the brief uh, rule of the Muslim Brotherhood under Morsi in Egypt has contributed to the poor governance or mismanagement of the economy in the Arab countries, which in turn uh, goes hand in hand with corruption. Do you see any way out of this? Because corruption has become uh, quite endemic in probably all the Arab countries. You see, my experience of the masses in the Middle East whom I've met in Egypt, in Iran, even in Iran, in Turkey and the rest of them, is that the people really are not as fanatical as the governments try to make out. This fanatism and religious extremism is government <laughs> supported and induced. People are not fanatical. In fact, if you look at the history of Islam from the very beginning, look at the period of Abbasids, it was very unreligious, irreligious. There was freedom of expression. There was the development of the Asharites who believed in reason. There was the belief of rationality by Ibn Rushd, uh, have yours. There was, uh, in Iran, even uh, under the Safavids, when you read the works of the Western travelers, they say the religious freedom, which they, they envied, their religious freedom. Uh, Chardin writes in the 17th century, when he was in Isfahan, a, a situation rather like uh, Hyde Park Corner. He says that people gather in these big coffee houses. One person talks about Islam. One talks about Christianity. One talks about Judaism. Some talk against religion, the ideas of Omar Khayyam, and nobody bothers. So the religious fanaticism is a recent phenomenon. This fundamentalism is the result of weakness. And they think they have thought that they need to use it in order uh, to, to feel strong. And of course, when you have this despotism and religious fanaticism, as you say, it leads to corruption. If you have democracy and the rule of law, so that people who are corrupt are brought to trial, they are stopped, then you can get rid of it. And I think that is the only way. Democracy, secularism. Democracy, secularism, rule of law. This will be the recipe for development in the Middle East and in the rest of the world. Thank you very much. Uh, Israeli behavior towards the Palestinians and towards its neighbors and unconditional Western support for Israel has led to a, a resurgence of anti-Semitism in the West and the Arab country. That's one point of view. Would you agree with that? I think I agree with that because, of course, you see once, uh, I mean, already you see reactions both in America, in Europe. Unfortunately, there is a rise in this anti-Semitism and there are some ugly forms of it. Uh, I think the Jews obviously are a very important part of the religious history of the world. They are a very important part of the cultural and intellectual history of the world. But they should be regarded as one of the many. Uh, when you try to talk about chosen people uh, and uh, 
you know, the Holy Land, uh, uh, this creates a very wrong idea. And I think what it has done is has not been, uh, it has been a disservice to Israel and the Jews because it has uh, distorted the Jewish democracy, Israeli democracy, and has given rise uh, to religious fanaticism in Israel as well. So I think, as I'm saying, I really regard, look at the whole region, not as Arabs, Jews, Iranians, Turks, but as the whole region needs to move away from religious fanaticism, from corruption, and move towards democracy and the rule of law. This will help everybody and will reduce anti, there's a huge amount of anti-Islamic feeling uh, in, in the West as there is anti-Semitic. But if they see that these countries are democratic and progressive and are moving towards uh, equality with the West, uh, according to their plan, which I suggested, then this anti-Middle Eastern feeling, anti-Islamic feeling too will subside. And hopefully all of these countries can live together as they have lived for <laughs> millennia. Do you know, in, in the Ottoman Empire, they had the Millat system where the Jews had their own say they had their own establishment they had their own representatives in parliament in iran uh, honestly there was no anti-jewish feeling ever we had the largest population of the jews in the middle east and even now there's a mosque and a, and, and, and a synagogue with one wall separating them next to each other uh, an american visitor in iran was talking to a leading member of the Jewish community in Iran. He said, I've gone to so many synagogues, they are very vibrant, but I didn't see any uh, guards at the door, which we have in America and in Europe. He said, we don't need them because there is no attack on us. Now, this is remarkable. It really is. I'm not saying that the Iranian regime is treating all minorities equally. It is not. But the image which has been given in the West is totally distorted. And uh, I think the more you try to antagonize, demonize, separate the people from each other, the worse it becomes. The best recipe of it is, in fact, there should be a coming together. In one of my speeches many, many years ago, when they were talking about Israel uh, after the Oslo Accord, I said, really, the Middle East should look at the Jews as native Middle Eastern people who have come back home injured and wounded as a result of the Holocaust. This is true. They live there in peace with Arabs, with Iranians, with Turks. When, for example, there was the expulsion of the Jews uh, from Spain, where did they go? They went to Turkey, they went to Egypt, they went to Alexandria, they went to Iran, because there was no persecution of them there. Maimonides was in Alexandria. Uh, a large number of Jewish scholars, Judaism flourished under Islam while it was being persecuted in the West. So this idea of Jews versus Muslims, Israel versus Iran, it is really nonsensical, it's fabricated. We should give it up. We are the same people. Uh, all the Jews that I know here and I've met in Israel, there is a huge Jewish Iranian population. They listen to Iranian music, they eat Persian food, they have still, still strong support, uh, feelings for Iran, and the Jews as a whole, even the ones from the West, have this warmth of feeling uh, very much similar to the feelings of 
Arabs and Persians and Middle Eastern people. So I think the remedy for all these antagonism, this hatred, uh, this division, is more unity, more friendship, more democracy. Thank you very much. My final question is about the U.S. Do you think that the continued U.S. pursuit of empire or hegemony or world dominance, whatever you like to call it, will inevitably put it on the path of irreversible decline? Well, all empires have declined. I mean, this is a, the point. Democracy or the great republic, uh, the city on the hill that uh, the American constitution sort of envisioned America was not an empire. In fact, early fathers said that America should avoid entanglement in foreign wars. But of course, as Eisenhower said, it has moved towards militarism and military industrial complex. The great benefit for America and for the world will be if America returns to American ideals and tries to spread those ideals, not by force, but by example, in the rest of the world. I, for one, see the American culture and American civilization superior to either communism, the Chinese system, or the Russian system. But it is not, democracy is not something like, uh, you know, instant Nescafe. Here is Nescafe, boil it, uh, some water, pour it in, bingo, you have got a cup of Nescafe. It is a process. It is a development. The West achieved democracy with pain, with wars, with evolution over a long period of time. Other countries and civilizations should be allowed to develop their forms of democracy through peace, through evolution, through cooperation. The idea which was there in Germany by Willy Brandt and others that East look to the East was to bring Russia in to Europe where it is, it's part of Europe and to use it with economic means to try to pull it to Europe. Unfortunately, with NATO's development and the rejection of this by America, which you know pushed uh, NATO contrary to the promises, some people say there was no. This is nonsense. There is plenty of evidence written and documented uh, that they promised that if Russia, Soviet Union, agrees to the unification of Germany, they would not move towards Russia by one inch. But then we have had the incorporation of all East European countries into NATO. Now, as I said, 31 countries. Then they wanted to bring Ukraine and Georgia. And, and now, of course, are saying that uh, Ukraine is part of NATO, must join NATO. I think if we change course, if we continue with this present course, the result is what the doomsday clock has shown us. We are only seconds away from midnight. If we want to reverse it, this reversal should take place in Russia, in China, but also in Europe and in, in America. Militarism leads to war and catastrophe. Thank you yeah. very much for a really excellent and enlightening talk, uh, which uh, I hope uh, would find a wide audience. Thank you very much, Farhang. That was really Thank you very much for being so kind and patient with this long interview. That was Middle East analyst Dr. Farhan Jahanpour talking to me, Mohammed Al Zafani, on Five Minutes to Midnight about the problems of the Middle East and its relations with the West 
and how Middle Eastern countries might regain their position as great members of the international community.